have the conversation. Ask the question, do you feel like racism and discrimination has affected your health? If yes, how? And when they tell you how, believe it. That's Dr. Enzinga Harrison, co-founder and chief medical officer of Eleanor Health and a physician board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine. And Zynga's here to talk about making progress regarding racial inequality and health equity. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. For more information, check out our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health. And follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor. I'm Jacqueline DeKiara, Oliver Wyman Health Editor. Enjoy the show. and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Sutherland, a principal in Oliver Wyman's Health and Life Sciences Practice. We're talking about healthcare equity with Dr. Nzinga Harrison, a psychiatrist and co-founder and CMO of Eleanor Health. Welcome, Dr. Harrison. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Good to be here with you. And please call me Nzinga. All right, Nzinga, thank you for that. Just to kick off, I know that Eleanor Health is coming up on its two-year anniversary, so congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful two years. Yeah, you must be so proud of your impact, which I'm sure looked very different in the past year, or maybe not. So can you tell us how Eleanor Health continued to leverage the whole person health approach to combat addiction over the past year with how that changed or maybe didn't change uh, because of COVID? Oh, it changed significantly. So we purpose built ourselves to be tech enabled, meaning we always knew that parts of our care model would be delivered in person in the clinic. Parts of our care model would be delivered by our community health workers actually out in the community with people we're serving and other parts via technology. But what COVID did was really turn up the gas on that via technology piece. And so Within the span of, what, two weeks last March, we made the transition from about 9% virtual services to over 90% virtual services. And that was really based on the commitment that we would not lose anyone from our treatment community. And so that was one of the biggest transitions was just to majority virtual care, but then also with all of the distress that all of us is experiencing Our community at Eleanor is experiencing that as well. So just figuring out a way to increase the amount of support, increase the touch points, increase the number of services, give that mixed course of virtual and in-person support has really been a phenomenal learning experience over the last year. Wow. Yeah. That sounds about right with the rest of healthcare. I'm going from nine to 90%. And what a transition to make, but the commitment is very admirable to keep those touch points going. On that point, you were quoted in Treatment Magazine as saying, we've been programmed to not be able to see the humanity in people who are Mm. suffering from addiction and other mental health disorders. And I'm sure that this is one of the founding principles for why you wanted to keep those touch points going with this population. And I would just love to hear more about this programming and what that means. Yes. You know, it's unfortunate, but there's this true lack of understanding that substance use disorders and other addictions are chronic health conditions. And so when we don't understand it as such, that allows really two things to happen. One is 
And so we believe it's a series of choices and that drives stigma and judgment. And two, it prevents the treatment infrastructure from being held to accountability. And so I always make the comparison to other chronic medical conditions that we have, like asthma, like diabetes, like high blood pressure, and the number of guidelines and the level of accountability to outcomes that those medical specialists have is lacking in substance use disorders because this lack of understanding of it as an illness. And I make the comparison to cancer where we don't blame people for getting cancer. We immediately drop into a very compassionate stance that a person will have to deal with an awful illness and try to wrap support around them in a biological way, in a psychological way, in a social cultural way to make sure that we're always pushing towards the best outcome using interventions as defined by the evidence. And because we don't have that same posture for substance use disorders and other addictions, then what we find is that people languish. Overdose highs are at the all-time highest because stigma prevents people from accessing care. Because when people do access care, the chance that they find an evidence-based program that's being held accountable to outcomes is low. Suicides are at an all-time high because unlike in diabetes, where the standard of care is that if you're managing diabetes, you are also evaluating other cardiac risk factors, other endocrine risk factors. The same should be true in substance use disorders since we know as many as 80% of people with substance use disorders have another co-occurring mental health condition, but it's not the case because we're not being held to outcomes. We don't drop into a position of compassion. We drop into judgment because we don't appreciate it as a chronic health condition. And so what we've tried to do at Eleanor is really to put those pieces together. What is the evidence base? How do we manage this chronic medical condition over time, the way we manage other chronic medical conditions over time? And how do we do that with a compassionate approach rather than a punitive approach that keeps people in care and leads to the best outcomes? Not just a 28-day treatment and you're cured. But just digging in a little bit more, you mentioned the stigma and preventing people accessing care, when we enter race, right? So there's stigma about mental health in general. And then when we're thinking about how this has different impacts on different ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, the whole host of backgrounds, but let's hone in on race here and how that's impacting the care that people who might need it most are, are able to access. Yeah. And so it's similar to the way race affects other things, but potentially even at greater magnitude. So if you look at the disparities that exist as it relates to substance use disorder treatment for Black people and other communities of color, there are barriers at every turn. So there are barriers to access. And this is combined having to do with race, but also having to do with the way socioeconomic status interacts with race in this country. As a general rule, Black people and other communities of color will have less access to evidence-based care when it comes to addiction. 
there's significant stigma. When you add race to the stigma that already exists for substance use disorders, you add even a bigger element of perceived criminality, of perceived uselessness, of perceived you're a bad person who can't handle your life responsibilities. Those are magnified in a person of color with addiction. When you look at the public campaigns now that are pouring much needed compassion around the opioid use disorder and to a lesser extent other substance use disorders, the faces of those campaigns are white faces. And so that sends a message that this compassion is not for communities of color or that somehow communities of color are not being affected by the opioid epidemic, which is absolutely wrong. And so that presents a barrier when you don't realize this is affecting your community or affecting you because you don't see your face in the public education and compassion campaigns. Black people who present to an emergency room for an opioid overdose are up to 35 times less likely to be prescribed a medication for opioid use disorder. And so you have to look at yourself and say, what is it that contributes to that type of disparity? And of course, if we have access barriers and we have race-based disparate treatment like that, then of course the outcomes are worse, right? Of course, attrition from treatment is up to five times higher for Black communities. And that's without even examining all of the other ways that social drivers of health are contributing. Wow. 35 times less likely. Help me understand that, Nzinga. Why is that? Yeah, and that is the right question. And so even before we get to why is that, I want to point out how terrible a job we do at looking at our data along race and ethnic lines. And I also want to point out that we'll look and say like, oh, the overdose rates in the Black community are higher. And you can draw a lot of very race-based stigmatizing conclusions about what that is. The same way when people say crime in Black neighborhoods is higher. And so if you're not careful, what you'll do is reinforce your implicitly racist beliefs. All of us have them. They're programmed into us as we grow up in this country. And so the answer to your question, why, has to start with data. And so we have to look at the way we do these studies is like we control for all the other factors that might be contributing to that, right? So is it like, okay, are there fewer ERs in communities that Black people are going to that have a doctor that can write a Suboxone or other buprenorphine product? Possibly, Mm. right? Is it that Mm -hmm. when that Black person comes into the ED, they're not seen as a person who's suffering with an illness? They're seen as a criminal who's making bad decisions. And that changes our medical decision-making. The literature shows us that. The answer is yes to number one, yes to number two. Number three, are Black individuals that are having these overdoses more likely to be uninsured and therefore unable to access a Suboxone Mm -hmm. prescription? Quite possibly the answer is yes. Is there higher stigma against medication in Black communities because of the experiences historically and currently that we're having with the medical establishment? Quite possibly, yes. When you ask the question why, it is the right first answer to ask why, but the next click you have to do is to be looking at every single way 
I can try to figure out what the root causes of this is because there will be no easy answer to why, but the answer to all of those whys will include because this person is black. And so the mistake that we make is trying to explain away the race impact by saying, oh, it's insurance. Oh, it's access to community providers. Oh, it's stigma in the black community. Oh, it's stigma in the medical community against buprenorphine in general, which is definitely a thing, right? Oh, it's stigma against treating substance use disorders with medication. All of those are definitely a thing. Being black in and of itself is an independent risk factor, separate from socioeconomic, separate from stigma, separate from abstinence-based marginalization, separate from community-based availability of treatment providers. All of those, yes, but we have to be willing to look at how did racism lead to this? And I think we're finally at a point in the country right now where we're willing to ask that question. So why? Part of the answer, a huge part of it, is racism. And really needing to take on racism as a disease in and of itself. Yes, yes. As a public health crisis, which is the, the language that you're seeing more mainstream now, there have been social determinants of health and race health disparity researchers for decades, for longer than I've been a physician, who have been trying to get this to be mainstream language even within medical communities, but also mainstream language just generally. And so we're starting to see that happen, which makes now a massive opportunity to make a difference. Where are we making progress? and ensuring race alone is not a barrier to equitable health care. So I always like to drop this into a change management framework. So a lot of times when we're talking about substance use disorders, you'll hear about the stages of change, which is uh, Prajaspa and DeClemente, and it's pre-contemplation before you even know there's a problem, and it's contemplation, like, I think this might be a problem, and then you make a decision to make a change, and it's action And then you learn how to keep that change in place and its maintenance. And then for a chronic condition like substance use disorders, other illnesses as well, any behavior, periods of relapse. And so that's one way to think about it. But I like to think about it in this organizational change management infrastructure, which is the ADCAR model, A-D-K-A-R. And the A stands for awareness. And the D stands for desire to be part of a change right? So awareness that there is a problem, desire to be part of the solution. The K is for knowledge, to know what needs to be done, and the abilities is to know how to do that. And then the R is reinforcement, penalties and privileges from getting good outcomes. And so I think the progress that we've really made in leaps and bounds over the last year is in awareness. Because before George Floyd was murdered on camera, there was serious systemic resistance to the idea racism in and of itself leads to poor health outcomes. And so the awareness of that over the last year and the desire to not contribute to that has exploded 
And because those are the foundations for being able to move on to knowledge and abilities and reinforcement, I have been so encouraged over the last year because I see a foundation building that for decades, there has been too much resistance for the mainstream to allow in. That is encouraging to hear. What is holding us back from making progress toward health equity? I think what is holding us back is what I often see in individuals and smaller organizations and systems and now in the country as a whole is skipping over the A and the D and the K right into just trying to make initiatives, right? This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. And what holds us back is right now, there are so many interventions and so many actions without having truly evaluated the data. And we can't truly evaluate the data because historically, and when I say historically, I mean up until like now, there's been so much resistance about cutting every single piece of data by race. We're seeing it right now with COVID, right? When we first started reporting COVID new cases and COVID deaths, it was not being reported by race and ethnicity until there was a huge groundswell activist movement and still all 50 states don't report by race and ethnicity, COVID cases and deaths. But when we started seeing that information cut by race, what did we find? Oh, Black communities and other communities of color have 2.5 to 3.0 increased risk of death from COVID. If we didn't look at the data, we couldn't know that. We're closing our eyes to the opportunity to impact that disparate outcome. The same is happening right now with COVID vaccinations. There's a huge activist movement to even get states to present their COVID vaccination data by race and ethnicity. It's that type of resistance and that refusal to look at data by race and ethnicity that's holding us back while at the same time jumping into interventions. So we need to start with awareness. Awareness means data, 35 times less likely to get a buprenorphine product prescribed after an overdose. That's a piece of data. Desire. I do not want that to be the case. How do I become part of the solution? Knowledge is getting to that question of why. And so what are the root causes? And what do I need to do about them? And then A, ability, how do I do that? And so, so many webinars, so many diversity, equity, and inclusion positions being created, so many consultants being paid, all of that is wonderful, but you have to start with data so that you know what the problem is, so that you can start crafting solutions, and it has to be sustained. This is a marathon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. As a medical professional in Zynga, why is race so highly correlated to COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths? And as we think about vaccines, which we can't understand completely because the data isn't yet there from a vaccination access standpoint. Yes. And so the answer to your question, why are new cases and deaths, and we can add vaccines in here, why are there such disparate outcomes? The answer is racism. Okay. 
and, and I'm making a very fine point here, the answer is not race. The answer is racism, because you could make an errant conclusion here that there's something biological about Black people that makes us die more easily from COVID. You could say it's because Black communities have higher burdens of underlying medical conditions, which is true. And so at higher risk for having severe COVID and death as a result of COVID. But when you look at why there are higher rates of chronic medical conditions in Black communities, it's not because inherently there's something about being Black, it's because of racism. And so when we look at who's at highest risk for COVID, people who live in close quarters. If you look in this country, Black and Brown communities are more on top of each other as population than white communities. If you look, who's at more risk? Those people who didn't have the privilege of working from home. When you look at our black and bound communities, racism in and of itself is an independent risk factor for those conditions. When you look at who's at increased risk, those who have decreased access to the healthcare system overwhelmingly are black and brown. So all of those are social constructs, right? They're not inherent biological differences because race is not a biological construct. Race is a social construct. And so the answer to why black and brown communities are disproportionately contracting and dying from COVID is racism. Structural and all of the structures we have in this country, educational, criminal justice, finance, housing, wealth, healthcare, all of those systems have inherent racism and that inherent racism creates vulnerability for black and brown communities. And the disparate impact of the COVID pandemic on black and brown communities is a manifestation of that vulnerability. Yeah, a manifestation that's on stage in some places at least. Under the bright light, um, under the bright yep. light. One thing you said there in Zanga that I, I'd love to, for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about is the fact that race is an independent risk factor. You mentioned quite a few examples of how it might be a compounding or it might be a correlation with some risk factors that I think the medical community today finds a direct, I would say, correlation between some of the socioeconomic status, social determinants of health factors that contribute to being a higher risk for health issues. But I really want to separate that for, in the way that you did and say that race is an independent risk factor. Mm -hmm. It is not a correlated risk factor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. And, and I want to be clear, race is an independent risk factor because of racism. And so what I mean when I say race is an independent risk factor is, for example, as a Black woman, I grew up with a very supportive family. I have a great support system now. I have tons of stability in my life that I'm grateful for. So all of those other socio-demographic variables that we've been trained into conflating with Black race, so low socioeconomic status, frontline essential worker, 
involved in the criminal justice system, when we hear about disparate outcomes, we conjure up the image of a Black person who is impoverished, who lives in a crime-ridden neighborhood, who doesn't have access to stability. And then we conflate all of those and say, this is why we have the disparate health. We can control for all of those. Dr. Nzinga Harrison on this podcast with you right now with none of those other risk factors. Purely my only two risk factors are being a Black woman. I am at increased risk for dying in childbirth right now. And so it's actually part of implicit racism to conflate those things because it allows us to take our eyes off of the true factor, which is racism. And we say, oh, we can address poverty. Oh, we can address congregate living. Oh, we can address minimum wage. Oh, we can address every other you know, criminal justice reform. And yes, we need to address all of those but the outcomes we have in each one of those are laying on the foundation of racism. So if we don't let ourselves get to racism as the root cause, then we're cutting ourselves off at the legs. So I'll say this, Elizabeth, there's this phenomenon called weathering. It's a medical concept and it basically shows that those who experience higher discrimination age faster, have higher disease burden, and die sooner. And that is a series of facts for Black communities. And so when I talk to people about weathering, I talk about the physiological impact that racism has on people of color. If anybody listening watched any portion of that George Floyd video and you felt your heart racing and you felt fear and you felt anxiety and you felt horror and you felt your muscles tense up and you felt that lump in your throat and you felt that pit in your stomach, that is your fight or flight physiological system being engaged. Racism is a daily experience for Black communities and Brown communities. And so that physiological reaction is a daily experience. And there is a direct correlation from that physiological reaction to high blood pressure, to obesity, to cardiovascular illness, to depression, anxiety, to substance use disorders. And so the physiological, psychological burden of racism itself is an independent risk factor for health. Wow. Wow. What resources are available today in the United States healthcare system or beyond to address weathering? Well, I think these resources are starting to be amassed. And I think there's actually a robust academic literature and you're seeing it hit the mainstream now because our researchers and clinical and medical experts who have, like I said, been working on this for decades, trying to lift their voices, but hitting that glass ceiling, the the last year has created an opportunity for that data and evidence and information to hit the medical community in a mainstream way, but also to hit the general public in a mainstream way. And so... Every 
professional organization is now starting to develop these resources and to point them internally at ourselves, meaning medical infrastructure, as well as externally to the general public. So, I mean, you can look at my professional organization, American Psychiatric Association, Black Psychiatrists of America, American Medical Association is doing a huge amount of work. The NIH is starting to do work American Cardiology Association. I mean, you can look across all of these. You can really just Google right now, weathering, racism, health, and so many resources will come to the surface. And a year ago, that was not the case. Wow, that is progress in a kind of a a sad thing that we need to make progress against, but at least we're elevating the topic and the awareness to drive, I hope, compassion at the very least. What advice can you give to clinicians and caregivers everywhere to make real progress toward equitable access to healthcare Mm -hmm. and outcomes? Mm -hmm. Have the conversation. So the reason we have made so many giant leaps for mankind over the last year is because we're having the conversation right? The resistance, we have made racism such a scary thing to talk about in this country that Mm. we would rather bury our heads and continue to suffer the consequences so that we don't have to deal with the hard conversations and the hard emotions that come along with facing the past and the present of our country. And so have the conversation at Eleanor Health, we take care of the whole person. We say a substance use disorder is the key to the Eleanor home or being affected by substance misuse, being at risk for addiction is the key to the Eleanor home. But once you walk in our front door, we take care of the whole person that walks in. Every person that walks in, every person of color has had some experience with racism and discrimination. And it's different. You cannot know what my experience has been if you don't take the risk to ask me what my experience has been. And you cannot Mm. form an effective treatment relationship with me if I tell you what my experience has been and you discount it because it hasn't been your experience. And that's a Mm. natural human phenomenon, right? Like I can't believe that happened because that's so far out of bounds from anything that I've ever experienced. Unfortunately, in this country, we discriminate against people a lot of different ways, right? Like we discriminate against people who are short. We discriminate against people, at least when I was growing up, it's a little bit different now, but people with curly hair versus straight hair, dark hair versus brown hair, thin versus not thin, black versus white woman versus female, queer and trans versus heterosexual cisgender, right? Like there are any number of ways. And so everybody, poor versus rich, everybody in this country has experienced discrimination of some sort. From the smallest where you questioned yourself, the smallest microaggression, like was that because of who I am? To the biggest macroaggression when you hear somebody drop the N-bomb on a hot mic, right? Where you don't have to question it, which just happened recently at a basketball game because of his quote, diabetes. 
right? Quote unquote. Like him saying, <laughs> my blood sugar was high is a refusal to acknowledge racism as the root cause of that incident. And so it can be so far out of your bounds that I can say to you, this was the experience I had today. And I experienced that as being because I'm a black woman. And you could think to yourself that I cannot even imagine that to be the case. But then remember when somebody discriminated against you for whatever reason, and you felt it, even if you felt like when I tell somebody else the story, they might tell me that, no, that didn't really happen. You felt it. You felt your heart race. You felt your mouth get dry. You felt your eyes prick with tears. You felt your fist clench, right? Every single person has had this experience some kind of way. And so have the conversation. Ask the question, do you feel like racism and discrimination has affected your health? If yes, how? And when they tell you how, believe it. And then the next step is, and how do I try not to recreate those same mistakes? Because we're gonna make mistakes. That's the definition of privilege. I have thankfully never been homeless. And so if I'm talking to a person who has been homeless, I'm going to make mistakes because that has not been part of my experience. And so there are things that I could never even realize I don't know. Have the conversation. Say, I don't know about this experience, but I wanna know about this experience because I know it's affecting your health. And when I make a mistake, please tell me. And I'm gonna receive it and I'm gonna try to understand it and I'm gonna try not to make it again. Wow, that is such good advice. And I'm sure many of us can, some easier than others, recall back to times when they felt discriminated against based on something that was completely out of their control. And, but they still felt the effects of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And can I give part two answer to this question? Oh yeah, go for it. <laughs> that was the like relationship answer. Take the risk to have the conversation. It is worth the risk. The other part two answer I want to give is look at the stinking data. Look at the stinking data. Cut your data every single step of every single process you have. We should be cutting our data along the major ways that we discriminate against people. So race and ethnicity is a major way we discriminate against people in this country. If you are looking at any piece of data, and you are not looking at it along race and ethnicity, you are refusing to be part of the solution. Sexuality and gender identity is a huge way we discriminate against people. If you are looking at any piece of data and you are not cutting it along gender identity and sexuality, you're refusing to be part of the solution. Socioeconomic status is a huge way we discriminate against people. If you are looking at any piece of data and you are not cutting it by socioeconomic status, you are refusing to be part of the solution. And I can keep going. Geography, rural versus urban, right? Like there are so many ways. Age, younger versus older. Those are like the, the big five. If you're not cutting every single piece of business data and clinical data and employment data that you have, by those variables, you are part of the problem, not the solution. Wow. When we have problems that we need to solve, we need to look to 
data and information to help us understand, going back to your framework, our awareness uh, and what we do and what we don't know so that we can truly apply our knowledge and ability. Because I do think and I hope that I speak for the majority of the medical population and that there is a desire to be part of this change, that we see issues and we need to combat them. But you're speaking some really powerful words here in Zynga around the need to have the conversation and be looking at the data in the major ways in which we have historically and are discriminating against people when it comes to business, clinical, and employment outcomes. And we can do something about it when we look at the information. Yeah, we create opportunities for ourselves. And and so that was a heavy message. I even realized when I was going, I was like, ooh, I am laying this one down <laughs> heavy, right? But what I what I want people to hear is that what I said earlier, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You don't have to eat the whole elephant at once. Like all you have to do is take the first step and be willing to have the conversation and then carve it up into small bites. Every little small initiative matters. Every little small piece of data you look at makes a difference. And so like, to be clear, I just laid that heavy. We don't have the ability at Eleanor Health to cut every single piece of data we have by every single one of those discriminators that I mentioned. We're like trying to get there, right? Like Mm -hmm. we've made the commitment to take this bite, to take this bite, to take the next bite. And so I don't want people to feel a sense of paralysis or failure because you're currently part of the problem. We are all currently part of the problem. The way we become part of the solution is by being willing to have the conversation and to take the first bite. Love it. Love it. And there is a movement towards, or we're seeing many healthcare payers and providers elevating and bringing in chief health equity officers to senior levels with responsibilities, I would say, at, at more senior levels than what they've had before. hmm What is your advice to them with the position that they hold? How do you feel about the position and how it's helping us like bring light and to the issues that we're dealing with? How do I feel about the position is that I love it. So part of our corporate culture in the United States is that we pay money and we create time for what we value. That's actually just like part of our culture. That's just being human, right? But as a healthcare system and and our other systems, We pay money and we create time for what we value. And so how DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion has typically been handled before this year was like, it's a sliver of somebody else's already over full position with no protected time and not necessarily any additional pay. And so that was a value statement. And so when you dedicate the resources time and money and power decision-making capacity to a chief health equity officer, then that is making a commitment that is outward facing that this is actually important to us and that we want to figure it out. So I absolutely love it as a position. The one piece of advice, if I had to still it down to one piece for my health equity leaders, especially those who are newly 
being installed in these positions is that no matter what your organization, you have a diverse collection of people. Sorry, I'm going to have to give two pieces. I know you told me one, but I'm going to have to give two. Go for it. You have a diverse collection of people. And so where we often trip up is on that D, which is desire. We want everyone to have this desire, but everyone does not have this desire. And I don't want health equity leaders to look at that as a failure or that that person can never be brought along or that investing in that person is a waste of time. I want you to look at that as somehow the threat of this change is not aligned with how this person is perceiving their own personal benefit. And as humans, we're biologically and socially wired to self-preservation. And so part of the biggest duties of the health equity officer is not to bring along those people who are already convinced, but to figure out where the misalignment along perceived self-preservation is for those people who are not on board and to make progress for them. Wow. Yeah. Which is counterintuitive, which makes sense. But when you're doing business transformation, you think about let's harness the energy we're getting from the people on board. We will not see the end of racism in our lives for two reasons. The roots run too deep. And so this is a longer than our lifetime movement, but also because humans are pack animals. And so we're biologically wired to pack up. And so we may see a change in the type of racism we see, but we will always be having to constantly and actively fight the innate biological reflex that we have that there are scarce resources and I have to protect them for people, for me and for people like me. Like that's an innate biological phenomenon of the innate social phenomenon of being pack animals. And so when you talk about a tangible strategy for how to start to reach those who don't have the desire, the reason you can't just ignore them is because then you just push the racism to be under the surface and to be covert. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Mm. And so this is harder in huge systems, but what you really have to do is get to your first line managers. Those folks who have a small team of 10 and less people and say like, one, evaluate their desire. And when I say desire, I don't mean like, are you racist or not? I mean, like, what is your desire to have this conversation? Is there anything about this movement that feels conflictual for you? And make it safe to have that conversation because you have to get to your manager's conflict so that you can then have them have that individual conversation with each of the people that rolls up to them to make it safe and say like, this is the problem I'm having with this so that we can consider that problem as we're crafting our interventions. We can, can, we can try to figure out how to have both, right? Like how do we resolve that problem for you and still move towards equity? Because most often yeah. there is equity, most often is the answer to the conflicts, but it's not being perceived that way. And sometimes it's not being presented that way. 
A hundred percent. And it comes all the way back to having the conversation on both ends, seeking to understand what is a barrier to that desire. That's right. In addition to seeking understand experiences that have led to unjust outcomes. Yes. Um, Right. Just like I said, when I come and I sit in front of you and you say, how has racism affected your health? And I tell you, and then I say, you need to believe me because it's my experience, even though it's not yours. The same is true for the person who seems anti-equity. Their life experiences Mm -hmm. have trained them into that perspective. And so we have to be willing to ask the question, like what life experiences got you to this viewpoint? And I believe you that those were your life experiences and then figure out how equity can be the answer because it is. And it's not just making the pie smaller. That's right. Well, Nzinga, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and insights with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Elizabeth. I really enjoyed this. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe so you're notified whenever a new episode goes live. Visit health.oliverwyman.com for more information about our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health. For more perspectives on the business of health transformation, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.